This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, this week we've been focusing on the blockade in Ottawa. Today we are turning to the border where protesting truckers are impeding an estimated $400 million a day in trade and wreaking havoc on the auto industry. The Ambassador Bridge, as you heard in Bob's news, is now closed both ways. The U.S.-bound lane had been open Yesterday, the alternative route through Sarnia is open but seriously backed up. Sarnia's mayor, Mike Bradley, is calling it economic terrorism, and he joins me now along with Perrin Beatty, president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having us. Let's begin with Mayor Bradley. What is the situation there today? Well, there are significant delays. There is still a blockage on the 402 between Sarnia and London, which is the major highway to the Blue Water Bridge. Uh, there appears to be some splinter demonstrations coming off that uh, particular blockage to go into parts of Lambton County. Uh, on the American side yesterday, there was long, long lineups. And uh, that, uh, you know, we have now become the new Ambassador Bridge. And, uh, you know, we've always had that relationship, you know, the Ambassador and the Blue Water Bridges. But now with the Ambassador Bridges problems, we've got uh, those issues have now been transferred into this, uh, this, this community. Perrin Beatty, uh, what are the knock-on effects? It's about $400 million a day. How much is being impeded and, and what's the impact on communities and manufacturers? The knock-on effects are enormous. Uh, we've seen, for example, car assembly plants having to cancel ships. So much of uh, the manufacturing that is done in southern Ontario is just in time where we have to count on being able to get the inputs that are necessary uh, on a real-time basis. So you could actually, with the automotive sector, have a car chassis coming down one side of the border to be matched with a car seat that was being produced on the other side of the border. Any delays at the border can result in a shutdown of a plant. So the impact in the automotive sector is particularly strong. But uh, we're also seeing the impact in terms of the produce that, that, that Canadians are looking for. Much of that cross, uh, crosses uh, the Ambassador Bridge during the winter. And as a result, we're seeing major delays or difficulties in getting it through, plus impact on, on workers. So you look at, you know, Mike was mentioning the delays there are for truckers sitting on the American side of the border. These people are not being paid to sit there, often without access to washrooms or to food. Uh, and as a result, then they are being penalized as well. Uh, yeah, it is uh, quite ironic. Uh, the, at first, the threat was that the vaccine mandates would cause shortages. And when that didn't happen, well, they were causing it. Uh, Mayor, um, what about all of that? Well, if I can just amplify something uh, parents said, what's happening now? One of the reasons the demonstration here on Sunday near the Blue Water Bridge, I'm told by the OPP, shut down and left was because the real truckers, and by the way, I, I don't call the people out there doing this now truckers, I call them protesters. And the real truckers were getting very angry because that's what parents said. They're paid, you know, by their being in motion, they're paid to be on time, and that's not happening. You know, yesterday we had, what, 10 miles of backup on the American side in port here in Michigan. So I think the uh, they've tried to steal that we're the truckers, and we saw the Canadian Trucking Alliance today put out another strong statement saying they don't represent us. And what puzzles me more than anything else be, is that if they, the Trudeau government lifted this uh, policy tomorrow, which they're not going to, but if they did, these people are still not going to get back into the U.S. because of the American policy. Uh the premier was talking to the prime minister yesterday. They said this had to stop. Finally, the conservative party is saying this has to stop. But, uh, you know, a casual look says nobody seems to be stopping it, Perrin. 
No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, Mike and I both have political backgrounds, so this is more current than mine. But I think there should be a very clear message sent to politicians at all levels. First of all, that the rule of law has to be obeyed, that any politician that is supporting small groups taking the law into their own hands and saying that they have a right to hold Canadians to ransom, any politician that does that is violating their obligation to the people who elected them. Two, this is becoming increasingly a matter of a question of leadership. It is critical for the welfare of Canadians and for the health of the Canadian economy that these illegal blockades be stopped. And it is important then that, that our political leaders at all levels uh, not debate whose jurisdiction this is or how we pass the buck. Uh, this has to end. They have to work together. They have to make it happen now. Mayor Bradley, um, we've seen in Ottawa the local authorities sort of throw up their hands saying, this is beyond us. We cannot deal with this. I have seen other police saying um, we don't want violence and and so we aren't going to do anything. I mean, what do you think should be done and how can this be shut down? Well, I, I do understand the softly, softly approach. I mean, that's something Canadians do as it relates to these type of things. But at some point, you've got to make a judgment. And look what's happened in Ottawa. You know, we don't direct police in this country, politicians. But my own view is this, that you ticket, you tow, and you arrest if you're not cooperating. And we saw that work. I mean, Premier Ford called me on uh, Tuesday, and, you know, we were comparing Ottawa, Toronto, Quebec City. And Toronto was very successful last weekend by a very strong approach, you know, blocking off Queen's Park, very, very strong about where the truckers could go, and they had a successful outcome. And if you, you know, anyone knows in life, if, if you are intimidated by others, then you will then not make the right decisions. And I think that's what happened. I don't want to, you know, damn Ottawa and Jim Watson all the way through this, but the fact is it was a textbook case of not how to do things and to give away ground that they're going to have a hard time getting back. So I guess, you know, the other thing that I think is being missed in all the reports about the border cities uh, uh, is that uh, it's also in our own communities created a climate of concern and fear. They are concerned about these activities. And my friend, the mayor of Windsor, has made it really clear, and he's correct. When you drill down on the core group of what I call almost anarchists, um, they, have no, they have no desire to solve this problem. The more disruption they can cause the economy, uh, to the political system, they're going to do it. And so you can't negotiate with unreasonable people. Uh, and let me just, just to build on what, what Mike was saying there, um, I'm speaking from Ottawa. This morning, the police in Ottawa put out a bulletin saying they were aware of an attempt to swamp the 911 system. This is putting people's physical safety at risk. And uh, we saw as well demonstrations at the airport that were designed to impede the people's ability to get in and out of the airport. This is absolutely unacceptable. And uh, Mike is absolutely correct. The important thing is not to allow these groups uh, to get to put themselves in place in the first place. They become very difficult to dislodge afterward. Well, what it's we're too- seeing is the potential for more of these actions. In Winkler, Manitoba, for example, uh, we're seeing the border, uh, the border entry point there closed today. In Coots, Alberta, it's been closed for some time. That's the most important crossing between Alberta and the United States. And we will see this elsewhere if we don't send a very clear message that it will not be tolerated. Well, uh, it's, it's a bit late for stopping the trucks in some of these. And, and, um, the mayor mentioned towing, but apparently the towing companies don't want to get in the middle of this. What, what can be done about that? Well, I'm speaking out loud here, and I raised this on our emergency group call yesterday, is that almost every, well, major city, town has a contract with their towing companies, which is very lucrative. If you can imagine, you're designated to be the tower, and I'll use the city of Sarnia as an example. Well, if you're not willing to tow in an emergency situation, I think we need to rethink those contracts or revise them. So, you know, there's always a solution to everything, you know, no matter how twisted and tortured it is to get there. But I think the key is the federal government, the provincial government, and I agree totally with Perrin that 
Forget all the nonsense about jurisdiction and who should do this. This is a national crisis, and it's a national social and economic crisis. So we need them to say, look, uh, you know, and I watched a couple of federal ministers the other day, uh, you know, saying, well, it's a municipal issue, it's a provincial issue. Knock it off. It is an issue. And then people say, well, why are you raising the feds in the Sarnia situation? It's a federal border crossing. It's a federal bridge, which they operate. So we just need people to say, we got to bring this conclusion. Because uh, my biggest fear, and I've been voicing this here locally for days, I'm worried about someone getting seriously hurt. You've got all this anger. You've got the protesters. You've got the legitimate truckers who are getting very upset. You've got the police involved. It's a recipe for some sort of tragedy to happen. How do you solve this without force? Well, I think, first of all, you start to do the things that you need to do. No, if I was, my car was to break down on the Blue Water Bridge today, I'd be towed in about three seconds. You start to do the basics, and then you start to do, and Ottawa seems very slow on doing it, but they seem to be getting there. You cut off the supplies. No, you're not going to sit there. And again, I'm totally in favor of peaceful demonstrations. And as I said, in front of Sarnia City Hall, uh, we have one or two every week, and that's fine. But what they're doing is hurting many other people. So, you know, I'm not to the point, and I don't know about Perrin, where the, uh, you know, sort of the emergency act should be declared by the feds. But if it doesn't happen soon, we cannot take much more of this. Well, and, and Mike, that I would father the Emergencies Act as Minister of Defense. Oh, I was the one who replaced yeah, right. the, uh, the the War Measures Act with it. Uh, I'm not in favor of invoking it at, at, at this point, but that's precisely the point. If you allow the problems that we have today to metastasize, you get into the situation where, where the options open to governments uh, just reduce that much more. I was in Seattle for the so-called Battle of Seattle, now, the first mistake that the authorities made there was they assumed that, yes, there were going to be demonstrations, but they were all going to be peaceful. There was no serious problem. As a result, then, when riots started to take place, the police weren't prepared to deal with that. They then overreacted, and you had a degree of violence and destruction there that would not have been necessary had the authorities acted appropriately at the front end. And just to go back to the point that, that, that Mike was making, this is not a federal or provincial or municipal issue. It's a national problem that requires all of our authorities to work together. And the starting point is that the rule of law in Canada must be upheld without fear or favor. I'm going to take a couple of calls, Jill in Niagara. Hello, Jill. Hi. Can you tell... Go ahead. I'm talking about Ottawa. There are three jurisdictions of police. RCMP polices the hills. Ottawa polices the city. OPP polices the, the province. Now, why can't these so-called leaders get together and come up with a plan to end this insanity? Uh, good question, Jill. I think we've been asking the same one. Do either of you have uh, anything additional to say to Jill? Well, I, there's not a... Sorry, there's there's not a Go ahead, Mike. Go. No, I'm just going to say, I mean, most of the police forces we're dealing with here right now are, and the Canadian Border Service are working closely together. I think what happened in Ottawa was it took days and days before it sunk in what the reality was, that they'd, surround, they'd given up their turf, they'd lost control, and they didn't have enough resources. But I know in my own area around here, OPP, Sarnia Police, RCMP, border people, and, and we're working with Homeland Security, work very closely together. I think this one just got up so quickly that they couldn't respond in a manner that stopped what was happening. Right. Well, but- and Libby, this is not something that's new. Uh, we've had the split jurisdiction in Ottawa. I was Solicitor General years ago, and the RCMP have responsibility, for example, for uh, foreign embassies in, in, in Ottawa and for uh, protecting uh, people like the Governor General, the Prime Minister and others. So we've had this split jurisdiction all of these years. The point is, we need to have them sit down together and say, this is not a matter of competing jurisdiction. We will not pass the buck. How do we work together to get something done and to ensure that, that, uh, that order and public safety are maintained? Well, uh, I think uh, the mayor put his finger on it. I mean, the the best solution is what we've seen here in Toronto is to prevent it. It's too late for that. And, and I still haven't heard how you solve this, frankly, without force and perhaps violence. The authorities are, 
you know, I don't think it's for Micah for me to, to prescribe what the authorities will do. They're the ones who have the intelligence first exam as a starting point to vote the situation on the ground. And they're the ones who know what resources they have. But the message should be very clear. This is unsupportable. We cannot continue like this. And something needs to be done to restore uh, much more ordinary operations in our cities and at our border points. And the important thing is, Libby, that if something isn't done, this will spread and the situation will get even worse. The economic consequences today and the, the consequences for Canadian families are very serious. And this could get worse unless uh, we have to show a political leadership that's necessary. Uh, Wendy in Guelph, you used to be a trucker. Yes, I had the pleasure of driving for four or five years before I got injured, but I want to keep it quick. Is there not an idling law? Because we were never allowed to idle more than two hours, and once you have to stop idling, you lose your source of heat in the cab. These people that have their families with them, they're probably a little farther along in this. They didn't realize what was that. But what about idling laws? Can you not do it with that? Um, I don't know if that would do the trick. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, yesterday, I was talking to the opposition leader here in Ontario, and she suggested, uh, you know, get uh, removing their licenses and uh, or cancelling their licenses so that they would be unable to drive in Ontario after this. Is is that a solution, Mayor? Well, well it, it could. I mean, the, the reality is you're dealing with a group of people. When I talked to, to Ford the other day, Premier Ford, and I mentioned about the ticket, tow, and arrest. He said, well, you know, realistically, the ticking option isn't a great option in the sense that they'll disregard. They'll let them pile up. So I think it needs much bigger. The solution has to be bigger in the sense that you're leaving. You've got till midnight to do so. And then, you know, hopefully there would be a, a positive action out of that with the police. And I do want to say one of the things they're doing with the media this group, the protesters, and with the police and people like myself is this. They're always, they look like they're cooperating and they're, they're talking to police and they're talking to emergency officials. Often, they're giving misleading information. And that's happened here a number of times. Oh, we're going to be here. Then it turns out they're not there. And then they'll go somewhere else and disrupt. So they're, they're doing, it's almost a guerrilla campaign of tactics to uh, shake up the system, disrupt the system. And then when you think, you know, when you hear the story about, uh, you know, disrupting 911, you know, lives could be lost. And I did hear an anecdotal story here the other day, because London's our main, main hospital uh, situation for us when there's someone that needs to be treated there. There have been perhaps serious impacts on people trying to get to that hospital. So I think it needs a much bigger thing at this stage. At the beginning, you could have done the idling bylaw and you may could have done a few other things. But now I think we're at a point where it needs, uh, it needs a big action. Uh, Perrin Beattie, do you think the threat of suspended commercial licenses would have any sway? Well, I think Mike's right that, that incremental measures probably aren't going to work at this point. I think it has to be made clear uh, by governments that, that these blockages have to stop, have to stop now. It's not a matter of nuance, and measures will be taken to deal with that. The other, the other point here is, of course, that many of the people who are involved in this are not truckers at all. And they're certainly not long-haul commercial truckers. Much of what we're seeing is pickup trucks or other vehicles that are involved. And there are an awful lot of other, there's a grab bag of groups who've gotten involved here for their own motivation. And this has nothing to do at this point with the issue of vaccination mandates at the border. This is much bigger than that. And people are rolling in all of their grievances and showing up. So there, there's not a simple tool that we have to deal with this. Uh, and, and Libby, if I could just add to that, to my own observation locally, it's the People's Party of Canada on wheels. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, let's take a call from Dan in Elmwood. Hello, Dan. Good day. Go ahead. Yes, I just called my MP, and he happens to be a PC, and let him know that uh, they need to get their support behind Trudeau. They need to get the Army in there with their big tow trucks and get those things out of there, seeing as the uh, private, private ones won't do it. And uh, another thing they can do, like Andrea Horvath was saying, take their commercial licenses and their CVORs. Take them for five years. That, that, that might do it. Okay, Dan, thanks Ready? for that. Uh, Perrin, you were saying you don't think the Army should be called in. 
I was saying I don't think that they, at this point, that we should be invoking the Emergencies Act, but but that may very well change, and it could, could change uh, quickly. It depends upon the assessment of the authorities on the ground as to what sort of tools are, are necessary. But the important thing here is that is that cannot be left to continue to, to grow. It will get worse if it does. And as a consequence, then we don't have the luxury of time on this. Okay. Well, if, let me, if I yes. can add into that, when I was talking about a grand gesture, I wasn't talking military action, but what I would love to see, and maybe it's a wild dream, and Perrin knows Ottawa better than I do, that all the leaders of the political parties come together, have a joint press conference, and say, listen, we've heard some serious concerns with some we agree with, some we disagree with, but we are asking you as Canadians to stop this right now. And the power of that message is beyond just towing trucks and all that, but that the political leadership could come together and really come together, forget the politics of the day, and just say that. I think that would have a very powerful message and boost the morale of Canadians. I mean, it's tough enough to go through COVID, never mind having this concern out there, too. Uh, and I, I totally think... agree with that. I think that's a good note to wrap things up on. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're done with this topic. In the meantime, thank you so much, Perrin Beatty and Mayor Mike Bradley. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Sylvie. Thank you. Okay, uh, moving right along here, we've mentioned the damage to the auto industry. Um, Auto workers are being laid off because parts are being held up. The Ford plant in Windsor is shut down while hours have been reduced at the plant in Oakville. And Toyota has also said it doesn't expect to manufacture any vehicles this week. Uh, let's go to Shane Wark now. He is the assistant to the Unifor national president. Shane, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me today. So how uh, how is this affecting auto workers? Well, over the course of the last few days, what's been happening in uh, in the Detroit three assembly plants where Unifor is the, the bargaining representative, they've been short-shifting or reducing the hours of work for uh, many of our members at the Windsor-Stellantis assembly plant. We've had reduced hours in Oakville. I just received notification from our Oakville local leadership today that Ford Motor Company is going to put reduced hours in effect again today. The General Motors Oshawa plant had reduced hours yesterday. All of that is trickling down into workers who work in the supply base, the, the auto part suppliers here in Ontario, where we have a large number of members. So uh, the I think you, you hit it. If you don't get the parts, they're not going to build the vehicles, and that means they're going to lay off workers, and that's what's happening here. And what's your message to those truckers or whoever they are protesting? Well, I'm not sure that they're truckers. Uh, I'll go with whoever they are. I'm not, I'm not sure who they are, but most of the, what I can say is I don't think it's a workers movement that's happening on the ambassador bridge because the, all of the workers that I'm talking to want to be, want to go to work, want to make a day's pay want to earn a good living and look after themselves and their family and be part of the community. And what's what's happening here is that event at the Ambassador Bridge is putting many, many thousands of workers on reduced hours and layoff. And so I, you know, we are calling for it to end. We put out a statement yesterday that we just think, of course, uh, everybody in this country has the right to protest. But I think they're gone beyond protest. Uh, this they, this disruption at the international border crossing is affecting many workers and families. It's the number auto is the number one export industry in Ontario and in the country, and so uh, I, it just needs to come to an end. And how do you think it should end? I mean, uh, at this point. In places where it wasn't prevented, uh, the the fear is uh, violence. Well, look at I, I would say definitely we want to avoid uh, violence. Uh, I don't have the solution. I do think it starts obviously with government. Uh, I believe that government has to have a coordinated message, and I mean government of all stripes. I'm not just talking, you know, the the liberal federal government or the conservative Ontario government. I think all of the parties got to get together 
and come up with a coordinated message, a coordinated plan that this is really harming or, or has the potential to harm thousands and thousands and thousands of, of workers and families. And uh, it, it just needs to it just needs to stop. What about the potential for long-term harm? I mean, do you see this as a short-term problem if we solve it, or or are there more? Is there more to worry about down the line? Well, when it comes to the auto sector, like a number of sectors uh, since the start of this pandemic, auto has been uh, hurt qu- quite a bit in the sense that they were the auto sector was already dealing with the long-standing semiconductor shortage. So uniform members in the Detroit 3 and our auto parts plant, they have been going, undergoing huge um, numbers of layoff weeks over the past two years because of these existing supply chain issues. So they've had reduced hours, reduced income, and then you throw the Ambassador Bridge on top of that and what's happening there with that blockade. And it's just making a bad situation in the auto sector worse. So hopefully it's resolved quickly. I think if it can be resolved quickly, then the, the plants can get back up and, and running on a steady basis and then hopefully move through the semiconductor shortage issue and re- restore some stability to that hugely important sector. Uh, but if it goes on, uh, you know, I don't know if things go on too long at the bridge. My fear is that these these plants are going to be idling, uh, not on a day by day basis, but probably on a week by week basis, and that becomes a serious uh, challenge for for workers and their families. Anything else you want to leave us with? Uh, no. Again, I just hope uh, I hope the what's going on at the bridge uh, ends, and I hope it ends immediately, and and uh, we can get back to doing what what uh, workers want to do, and that's going to work earning a day's pay, looking after their families. Okay. Shane Wark, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Bye-bye. We we are going to take a break. And on the other side of the break, Mayor Patrick Brown, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Turning now to Brampton, Mayor Patrick Brown wants his city and the rest of the province to reopen sooner than planned. He says the science backs that up while the health minister is still advocating a cautious approach with a three-week interval between stages, as is the Mississauga mayor. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Hi. Hi, Libby. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, And before we turn to this, we've been talking about the trucking situation, the protests. Uh, We don't even know if they're actual truckers. So Brampton is a hub of trucking and logistics. A lot of the people involved are of South Asian descent. I I don't see them represented in these protests. Yeah, I haven't heard about much participation uh, from the logistics sector in in Brampton. And, you know, when asked about this, um, you know, my thoughts are everyone has the right to protest as long as it doesn't infringe the freedoms of of others. Um, And, you know, there there are... uh, there's a time and place for those those protests. Uh, we have lawns on Parliament and Queen's Park, uh, uh, but you, you certainly shouldn't be engaging in blockades or disruptions that um, inhibit the, the national economy. And uh, how is it affecting the people in your city? So I haven't seen effects um, of, of the blockades yet. You know, we do have a, a Fiat Chrysler uh, plant, so I'm worried that there could be some disruptions to some of our automotive jobs. Um, But, you know, I I haven't seen those effects yet. I've heard about possibilities that that there could be repercussions, um, but it hasn't arrived at this moment. Okay. Uh, So turning to uh, you want to reopen sooner. Uh, What's the science that you are citing to back that up? Well, we have some of the most onerous restrictions in North America right now in Ontario and other provinces and states have had a more progressive reopening than we have in Ontario. And so I've been a voice along with Dr. Lowe um, with 
um, a view that the, the right now the data is very clear that we're seeing a very encouraging trend line. Two weeks ago at Brampton Civic Hospital, we had 110 COVID patients. A week ago, 70. This week, 38. Positivity rate dropping uh, dramatically. Wastewater indicators, very encouraging. Every indicator is is showing uh, that we've put this difficult stage uh, behind us. Our hospital capacity isn't just stable, it's strong. And I should mention, I had one of the hardest hit hospitals in the entire country. And the basis for these restrictions when they were announced was we didn't want to see the hospital capacity um, overthrown. And that's not a worry right now. And so the fact that we continue to have restaurants uh, with capacity limits that are that are very strict and uh, other small businesses and, and gyms, you know, we have to get back on, on our feet. I've, I've lost two more businesses this month in Brampton, a very well a pot, like a popular restaurant announces that they've they've gone bankrupt because of the lockdown. A local gym announced that that they've gone under. There are economic repercussions to the severity of of these restrictions, but I also think there's mental health consequences. You know, I spoke yesterday during my weekly press conference about the fact that that I can't go and visit um, my grandmother uh, who's at a long term care facility in in Toronto. Um, I know that those rules are are going to change, but. Boy, you know, you look at the consequences, the social isolation for our seniors. Um, I just think there could be a greater level of reasonable reasonableness in terms of the pace of the reopening. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to the premier? We have heard reports that he is thinking about easing some of those restrictions. Have you talked to him about it? You know, throughout this um, period of lockdowns uh, this year, I've spoken to the premier. I've shared my perspectives. I would say he's sympathetic to it. Um, and I, I think he's shown examples where he's been willing to pivot. You know, a good uh, example of that would be, you know, kids in school. As you know, I wasn't happy in January with the timetable. I wanted to see kids in school. My medical officer of health wanted to see kids in school. Sick kids wanted to see uh, kids in school. And the government uh, amended their timetable. And you should, I, I should note, at the time, you know, you had many people saying the hospitals would be overwhelmed if we, if, if we brought kids back to school. Um, and that hasn't happened. And so there are ways to safely reopen. There are ways to get our society open again in a safe and prudent manner. So uh, what I'm asking is, have you talked to the premier like recently <laughs> so I, in I the last couple spoken, of days? No, I haven't spoken in, in the last couple of days, but, but I do speak to him regularly. And I, and I give him credit for always having uh, an open line of communication. Uh, your colleague, Bonnie Crombie, uh, just this morning was saying uh, she wants the cautious pro- approach uh, to continue. Yes, certainly other mayors are entitled to their uh, perspectives. Uh, you know, uh, my my sentiments, uh, my sentiments are that, uh, you know, we, we can safely reopen and we don't need to have the most onerous restrictions in, in the country uh, in Ontario. Uh-huh. And... Um, what do you think, uh, uh, what are you hearing in terms of uh, the response to that? I think there's real consideration happening at the provincial level for um, uh, um, moving up the, the, the reopening. Uh, I think if you look at other jurisdictions, not just in Canada or in the U.S., or, but around the world, um, increasingly we're hearing the leaders in public health saying that we need to learn to live with COVID-19. You know, each strain of a new variant seems to come back uh, less severe. Uh, We have new tools, whether it's uh, vaccines or products to help uh, treat um, uh, COVID-19 in the hospital. We have more tools than ever before. And so we are going to have to learn to to, to live with COVID-19. We we can't be in a perpetual state of having a closed society. Um, There are economic repercussions to that. There are mental health repercussions. There's personal health and wellness repercussions. Uh, and 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 I I'm cautiously optimistic that the government's going to pivot on this. Okay, I want to turn now to another uh, fairly interesting and obvious topic, and that is uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party. We've heard your name bandied around a lot. I know that people are calling you about it. What are you thinking? So you know, I've been a lifelong uh, conservative and uh, an admirer of. Uh, former Premier Bill Davis, who I thought set the finest examples of being pragmatic, thoughtful, and, and decent uh, as a conservative uh, leader. You know, right now, I am entirely focused on reopening the city of Brampton, getting our businesses open, uh, making sure our families uh, get through this uh, difficult period that we've had over the last 18 months. Um, 
I think it would be premature to, to, to even consider this, given the fact there's no timelines or rules yet. I have received encouragement from MPs and senators and and uh, people who participate in the political process uh, uh, across the country. Um, but uh, my response has been it's uh, too premature to, 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 to even look at, but I'll certainly follow the events in Ottawa. So you're thinking about it? I'd say it's premature to even uh, even think about it at this point. There is no race. There is no rules. There is no timelines. Um, but, you know, I, I do care about the direction of the country. I, I care about the direction of the Conservative Party, and, uh, and I will be watching those events in Ottawa. You've said that you have concerns about the direction. I do. Uh, you know, there's a number of areas that I've spoken about publicly uh, in, in the media in terms of policy direction that, that I would like to see change both within the Conservative Party and within um, the Parliament of Canada. You know, I've been very outspoken on religious freedom and how Bill 21 in Quebec infringes that. You know, I've launched a campaign in Brampton over the last number of years on, on bail reform and the revolving door nature of our of our justice system. So I, I don't think it's any surprise that, I, you know, I have advice that I would offer the Conservative Party and, and for that matter, the the, the government of Canada. I think this pandemic has shown how fragile we are as a as a country. We didn't even have the domestic capacity for production of key essential products, from PPE to to, to vaccines. I look how fragile our healthcare system is. Now we went into this uh, pandemic with ninety one percent of our hospital beds in use. You know, in many countries it's sixty percent, and so we were we were we resorted to lockdown after lockdown instead of actually improving our hospital capacity in this country. And so, yeah, I've got lots of ideas, lots of advice. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be the one who will be uh, carrying that banner and, and uh, advocating for them in Ottawa. But, you know, for those interested in in um, federal politics and, and for that matter, provincial politics, I'm always happy to share perspectives. Well, um, it seems like uh, the more populist and right wing of the party is on the ascendant. I mean, since the merger, you've had this tension. You're citing Bill Davis, who was uh, very much centrist. So um, what do you see in terms of that? I mean, if, if we're going to today's news, finally, the Conservative Party uh, said the truckers should go home before, you know, they were all posing with them saying, great job, guys. Yeah, so I uh, I certainly um, uh, believe that the, the best approach for the Conservative Party of Canada is to learn from great leaders like uh, Bill Davis. And Bill Davis worked with everyone. Um, after the last federal election loss, I wrote an op-ed in the paper where I said we should follow his model of, of, of thoughtfulness and, and decency. And, you know, I, I realize there are some aspects of the Conservative movement that want to replicate the Republican Party in the U.S., um, those certainly aren't my opinions. Um, you know, I, I come from a, a different perspective, and uh, you know, I will advocate uh, um, for as long as people will listen that there is a, a more pragmatic approach, and, and, and that is to follow the example of, of, of great leaders like Mr. Davis. So, uh, what's the bottom line on this? You're thinking about it, and you're waiting to see what the rules are. You know, no, I'm honestly right now. I'm just focused on on the reopening of of, of my city. Um, you can't uh, think about a race that, that hasn't even started. And, uh, um, you know, I, I love, honestly, I love my job in, in Brampton. I love being mayor of, of Brampton. I love uh, uh, the work that I get to do at, uh, at City Hall. And, and, and that's my focus right now. You know, I'm, I'm happy to take phone calls from those that have uh, encouraged me. It, it never hurts to listen and to talk. Uh, but, uh, you know, right now my focus is on, is on the city of Brampton. <laughs> we just got a question uh, showing up on our board here saying, if you were to run for the leadership, would you need to forfeit uh, your job as mayor? Uh, I believe you would, right? Or well, and we, we, we wouldn't even know when the, when the, when the leadership is going to be, whether it's uh, a year from now, whether it's, it's, it's sooner. And so you know, those are questions I wouldn't be able to answer. And that's why right now, I am simply focused on uh, reopening the city of Brampton, and I'm not getting to, into any speculation um, about a, a race that hasn't even been launched. Okay. Thank you so much, Mayor Patrick Brown. Always great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank okay. you so much. Bye-bye. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, we heard that rapid tests are going to be distributed for free. We'll talk a little bit about the rollout when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott announced that more than 2,300 grocery stores and pharmacies in the province will be providing rapid antigen tests for free. As many as 5.5 million of these tests will be made available on a weekly basis. Now, we all remember the Hunger Game-like scenes when the first tranche of the kits were distributed before the holidays. So how is this rollout happening? How can you make sure that you get your hands on some of these kits? Let's go to Justin Bates, the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Hi, Justin. Great to be with you again. Thank you. Uh, great to hear from you. So uh, tell me a little bit about the rollout. Um, one of the things I wondered about in terms of the pharmacies, I mean, they sell the kits. So uh, where do the free kits kind of fit in? It can be confusing, certainly. And uh, I think the, the entire rollout of the rapid antigen test has been one that uh, we can certainly learn from and, and avoid some of these mistakes uh, in the future. But the, the difference between this program and those that uh, are selling it in, in various uh, retail outlets is that the, the ones that are being sold were privately procured and not supplied by government. So, um, you know, a retailer would have worked with the manufacturer, they would have purchased those rapid antigen tests, and then they would resell it uh, to the public. That is different than those that are supplied by government that are intended to be free of charge, which is what we're embarking on now through those 2,300 retailers of which approximately 2100 are, are pharmacy locations. Um, so that's the, the difference. And there should be no monetary transaction attached to uh, in order to be eligible or get the, the kit. And I know there's been some uh, discussion out there about uh, different schemes, but the intention is to offer these to the public through these locations uh, free of charge. Okay, yeah, but uh, my question is, uh, aren't they uh, eating their own lunch to a certain extent? I know of pharmacies who just got purchased uh, rapid antigen tests. Yes, and so there is a a bit of that, but uh, let's be honest, 5 million kits is not going to uh, last long with a population of 14.5 million. We have guidance still to do this twice weekly, um, and uh, those that want to confirm if they have symptoms to avoid the the spread of infection. So I I expect with the demand that we're already seeing, we're going to fly through those, um, and without a replenishment, we're going to be back where we were before this, uh, needing to um, get more into the hands of of Ontarians. Now, this is all evolving because right now these kits are actually off-label use, meaning they're not approved for self-testing. But the government has uh, provided authority to use them uh, in a capacity that they weren't originally designed for. But what you're going to see is all of these companies um, are applying for a self-test component, home, a true home consumerable. Um, and it'll be packaged uh, accordingly. So you will see more out there in the market, I think, once those approvals from Health Canada arrive. That's interesting because uh, uh, I've seen a number of different kinds of tests and they all have videos showing you how to use them at home. (laughs) Yeah, and that's been able to support uh, the self-testing off-label authorization that governments have provided because there's been a lag between the application to get uh, approval for self-testing to where we are today. So out of uh, an abundance of caution and also uh, to expedite things, we've had uh, sort of a dual strategy of this is how you do it. But keep in mind that people don't do this right without a healthcare provider oversight or actually collecting the sample. There is the potential for false uh, negatives. If you don't get uh, deep enough and, and um you know, both nostrils, uh, you know, potentially you're getting a false sense of hope. So I think the the importance of doing it right uh, is is critical. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, if you don't get deep enough, uh, you just don't get any result at all. I can tell you that happened to me the first time <laughs> I tried one. Um, I have a, a question about travel, and that is we need an antigen test to get into the United States. So do they accept uh, a test that you did on your own at home or do you have to go to the pharmacy and pay the 40 bucks so that you have a piece of paper from the pharmacy? That's a great question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure I have the answer, but I do believe you need that confirmation 
uh, piece of paper. So that would require the the cost of uh, doing that at a pharmacy or uh, elsewhere. But I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that because um, it's a great question that if you have a, a self-test, uh, you take a picture of it, um, you know, does that constitute evidence of a that they would accept at the border of uh, a negative result? And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do a little bit more research on that one. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, presumably you could take a picture of any test. Correct, and, and that uh, would be the, the challenge, right? That would be the challenge. So again, in terms of the rollout, what are some of the companies that are involved with handing these things out? And do they actually have them already? They do. So there was a, a survey that was sent out by pharmacy distributors who receive the test kits from government in these boxes, uh, and there's five per box. And uh, they started shipping them out earlier this week to be ready for the announcement. But it's not all shipped in the same uh, allotment. So every week there will be a replenishment uh, to the pharmacies, and they have a, a, an ordering process that they would go through. So there's a limited supply this week, and then more will be coming in the uh, weeks ahead. The the whole process here is uh, we, we went out to uh, the pharmacy community and asked those that wanted to participate. There was an understanding that there would be no reimbursement to do this. And really, this is a retail distribution model as opposed to a healthcare provider uh, role because we're not collecting the samples. We're, we're basically providing a footprint for people to get access to these uh, test kits. So, um, and that's the only real parameters uh, and rules around the program is that uh, it's one box per person. But there's really no policing of it or tracking requirements or any administration, for that matter, around it. So there's a bit of a, a good faith um, element to this. And there is the potential for hoarding if people go to multiple locations. So there's not anything we can do to prevent that other than you know watch uh, closely at our locations to make sure people aren't taking more than they should. And uh, some of the retailers and pharmacies, Loblaws, Costco, Metro, Shoppers Drug Mart, Sobeys, Rexall, Longos, and Walmart, where apparently they originally were asking for a $35 minimum shop to get the free kit until uh, the Premier put an end to that? Yeah, so I think there was some, uh, obviously, confusion around that. And, um, you know, they, of course, corrected it. Uh, the original plan, and each each retailer is going to implement this slightly differently based on their workflows and, and operating model. Some will offer it like a table at the front of the store with a sign. Others may require the person to go into the back to the pharmacy. Uh, and Walmart originally was looking at um, not having people come in just for a test and try to do crowd management. So what the confusion was is that they said, we will provide it when you come uh, for an online grocery order and pick it up. Uh, and they have a minimum uh, amount you have to uh, buy in order to do online grocery shopping. So that, that $35 was attached to that. Um, and, uh, and of course, then you would go to your, your parking spot at the Walmart and get the test kit out when they deliver your groceries. Unfortunately, that, that left, uh, the impression that you had to do, and there was no other option. So there was a $35, uh, pay to play, if you will. And, and now they, they, uh, changed that and that you can go into the store and get it without spending any dollars. Okay. I'm going to take a call from Donna in Burlington. Hello, Donna. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? What's your question? Uh, uh, well, it's a comment, actually. Um, I have uh, friends in Quebec uh, who the uh, the rapid test kits have been distributed or are in the process. Uh, how it's being handled there is they uh, have to show their health card when it's uh, given to them and it's recorded, and that way it eliminates people from getting 10 or 15. Okay. Well, I, I don't think they're doing that here, Donna. Thanks for your call. Uh, yeah, one of the reasons that they're not doing that is that does place administrative burden on yeah. uh, the retailers, right? And you start tracking and, and having to provide that level of documentation. While it does prevent, quite right, uh, hoarding, it also introduces a lot of uh, red tape to that and can slow up the process of just getting them in, into the hands of uh Ontario residents. So, uh, you're, I mean, look at what happened with LCBO and the malls when they did this. This was our probably our biggest concern was just around that crowd management and making sure we do this safely and orderly, not to have uh, chaos. 
Yeah. Um, yesterday, I was talking to Dr. Peter Uni, and he is suggesting a new method for the kits. I haven't looked at his video, but it involves swabbing the mouth as well as the nose. Online, I've, I've heard people talk about swabbing the throat. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, there's, there's evolving evidence that demonstrates that there's more cultures within the throat, even the cheek swab. Uh, to get a more accurate uh, test result um, and doing both uh, nasal swab uh, until you it meets resistance because it's a, not a deep one, uh, shallow. Uh, but uh, doing both will enhance the sensitivity of the results um, and reduce any false uh, negatives. So uh, I have heard that, uh, but the official, I guess, public health guidance hasn't been updated yet to include that. Mm-hmm. So... Uh... If people go this afternoon, are they going to be able to get those kits? Well, as I was looking outside my office window, I saw the lineups at some of the pharmacies this morning, and uh, no guarantees. It's a largely first-come, first-serve uh, uh, nature of what way we're distributing these. So it's possible. Uh, many pharmacies have them, but uh, they will run out fairly quickly, and I know that will be frustrating for many who are uh, still out there searching for these, but uh, they will get replenishment next week and, and every week thereafter. So best thing to do is probably check on the websites. Um, there will be a list, I believe, on the government website of all the participating pharmacies. Uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, people can persevere and have some patience as well and not take out uh, frustrations if there is no supply. You know, remember that these pharmacists are doing this to uh, in kind to help support access to these test kits, and uh, it's not their fault if there's no supply. Mm-hmm. And um, anything you would like to leave us with on this? Well, I think this is uh, continuing to be an evolution. Uh, we've seen so much changes with the testing criteria on the PCR side, you know, entry requirements for various jurisdictions, and we're going from, you know, having lots of access to PCR testing and tracing and tracking to virtually none. Um, so this is our last sort of tool to do the screening. And it's really important if we want to prevent the spread, do it right um, and allow for people that have to self-isolate for the five days uh, an opportunity to do that because there's asymptomatic and symptomatic. Uh, and who knows what the next variant may be. Hopefully there isn't one, but uh, we, we need more test kits and we need even better access than what we have today. And uh, we're going to continue to work with the government on solutions and We'll, we'll certainly step up where, where we can. Okay. Thank you so much, Justin Bates. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. That's all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you couldn't get through or have more questions, there's a lot to talk about. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.